Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello again, everybody, and thank you for joining Kim and I today on The Wonderful World of Wine. How are you, Kim? I'm doing well. A little tired, a little busy, but uh, otherwise doing pretty good. How about you? Everything is good. I'm always excited to talk wine with you and our listeners here on uh, WFPR 102.9 FM. The first story I found, Kim, for us to discuss was how to tell the difference between cheap inexpensive wines and oh that c word that you hate yeah that's the first thing we have to talk about is because we know. hate saying cheap we like to say inexpensive so we're going to substitute and say inexpensive wine and this article was from the talented ladiesclub.com and they stated right off saying with a little bit of practice you'll be able to understand it's definitely worth paying a little bit more for what's in your glass. First off, Kim, what is the best way you approach when someone asks you this question, if there's a difference, or they'll say maybe there isn't a difference? How do you approach it? I approach it in a couple of different ways. Often in the context of this question, I will have people ask me what goes into a wine or what makes an expensive wine expensive. And I usually start off by saying that it's not just the raw materials that go into it, but there are other factors as well. So it's not just more expensive grapes make more expensive wine or all the grapes are the same. And then the winemaker just decides what kind of price tag to put on there. It's it's a lot of different things. Some of it is labor. Some of it is attention to detail. And a lot of it is supply and demand. And I think that's one of the things that they don't actually touch on in this article when talking. They really spent more time equating more expensive wines with better quality and less expensive wines with lower quality. And they were like, and this is what we mean. So it was pretty simple. Like this is, I think, a good starter discussion on less expensive versus more expensive and being able to taste the difference between the two. And I think that that's what they were going for. What can the ordinary consumer hope to get out of tasting the difference between a less expensive and a more expensive? You know, why should someone pay more money if they don't care about the cachet of a particular winemaker or area or grape variety that they're just concerned with what the wine tastes like? So often when I have this conversation with people, I don't just stop at that. You know, I go into, well, the reason that this wine might be more expensive might not have anything to do with how much you are going to enjoy it. Or if it's, you know, up against this other wine that's less expensive, which one would you like more? But it has more to do with, well, this particular region only produces this, you know, so many bottles of this wine. And so therefore they can charge more for it. You know, kind of get into a conversation like that about the pricing of wine. So I thought this article did a pretty good job of breaking down what you should expect to taste if you're going to spend 10 or $20 more on a bottle of wine. But then it kind of stopped there. Yeah, I'm glad you said 10 or $20 
more because everybody's price point is dependent upon your own individual budget. So everybody right. might have a different meaning of expensive mm -hmm. and inexpensive. Or a different uh, threshold of correct. you don't want to go above this for either an everyday kind of wine or a Tuesday night wine, or even if you're going to buy three bottles to compare to each other, different people have different levels that they'd be willing to spend. And actually, one thing that I did want to point out about this article is that it's an English article. So <laughs> their turns of phrase are very quirky <laughs> to an American ear. But at the end of the article, they refer to sort of what you shouldn't necessarily be paying less than if you want to get some sort of quality bottle of wine. And they talk about it in pounds. And and I figured out what it was in dollars just for so our American or audience. $10 or 12 US? It was about 12. Yeah. yeah. 12. Um, yeah. Going by what the exchange rate was between pounds and dollars um, this summer, it ended up being about 11 or $12 a bottle. Yeah. So typically when someone says, I drink a $10 bottle and I think it tastes no different than an expensive, say, $50 bottle. And I always have a, a hard time responding to that without being rude because <laughs> I, you're I, like, I, really? Well, the more you taste, just like this article was saying, the more you taste or the more you know about wine, the more you know that a $10 bottle is just not the same as a higher priced bottle. And, and you started to go into what makes a wine more expensive, you know, supply and demand, location, quantities. It also has to do with how the wine is made. Would you also say, Kim, better ingredients being better grapes, better mm -hmm. quality? So Yeah, better grapes. And they touch on, you know, the, a more hands-on approach, which I think really does impact, yes, the price tag, but then also those quality markers, you know, you've got just better fruit. I feel like if there's more attention to detail about what grapes are going into the winery and whether they're handpicked or whether they're machine picked, I think that makes less of a difference as long as you have eyes and hands looking at the fruit that is going into the winery so that you know that it's not, you know, moldy or, you know, there's not too many leaves in there or they're underripe or there's frogs, <laughs> anything crazy like right. that. Right. You tell someone all of this and then they still say, I cannot taste the difference. How do you approach that? I think I would you ask if they've ever tasted them side by side because a side by side comparison tasting, I feel like is really a well, great show, way to notice different, right? Yeah. I mean, they'll show and taste totally different, but maybe it's just not their style. And then yeah. thinking, and I think that's a big part of it, too. You know, people are equating better wine with wine I like more. Yeah, exactly. And that's. Exactly. Those are two different conversations because we can tell, you know, we tell people all the time that this hundred dollar bottle of wine might be super fantastic and it gets all these great scores. But if it's a style that you don't like, then don't spend a hundred dollars on that bottle of wine, because no matter how much you kind of psych yourself up for, oh, you know, I'm drinking this big, expensive wine. If you, if you're, if you don't like it, right, don't do it. Style. Yeah. So that leads to my next question. If you're a wine drinker that all you're really drinking is these inexpensive, maybe due to your budget, maybe due to what you like, do you think there's any chance that person's palate can ever like a more expensive wine? Oh, sure. Because, I mean, if you are generally drinking less expensive wines because you're not generally able to spend a little bit more money on the bottles, I think there's always room to grow, but you might not 
get many experiences or many chances to taste some of those more expensive things, which is fine. You know, we don't want to shame anybody for not being able to have the means to try those things. But I think if you are someone who has a regular wine that is an inexpensive one and you just really like that style, I would say find something else that is that grape or is from that region or maybe is from that producer and see what they make at that next tier up and then try tasting them side by side or every once in a while for a maybe more special occasion, you know, try that other one that'll hopefully be in the same sort of style point that you like and see if then you can be like, oh, I, I kind of can see how this is a little bit of a, maybe a step up from what I, I normally drink. So we talked about what would make a wine more expensive. What are some of the things, the qualities of a more expensive wine that you can taste the difference? What would be some of the things you would say, this is why this tastes different? I know and in I think the article, is, they hit a few things. Yeah, they hit a few things that I completely agree with, but there are also things that are number one, subjective. And also, if you haven't been paying attention to the different components of your wine, like if you're just drinking a glass of wine because it's what you like to drink, but you're not really thinking much about it, it takes a certain change in your mindset to then flip to, oh, I'm going to start thinking about the complexity and the balance of my wine. It's like, yeah, yeah. So, so if wine, is just, you know, if wine is just a drink for you, then stepping back and trying to analyze it might be completely new, brand new experience. So for me to just, you know, come out and say, well, you'll be able to taste the difference for the, with this more expensive wine because it has more complexity and balance. And people are like, well, what the heck does she mean by that? So I think it's a little bit, hard to use some of these starting points because people might not even know what to apply them to when they're tasting. For Anyway, for in this article, they talk about balance, they talk about complexity, and they talk about finish. I think finish is a little easier for people because it has to do with how long can you taste the wine after you've swallowed it. So I think that's an easier starting point for a lot of people. But I like to talk about balance a little bit more than complexity, because I feel like with some wines, you can really tell if there is one component of the wine that is sticking out more than another, whether it's overly sweet or overly tart or kind of makes you feel like you're drinking a glass of whiskey, you know, if it's just overly alcoholic. And I like to say that those are wines that have elbows, you know, they've got (laughs) appendages sort of sticking out that are sticking you in the ribs that maybe they should be a little more subtle. So that's a way that I like to approach the whole balance issue with people. It's like, well, if it, if all the pieces seem to be fitting together really nicely, then you've got a well-balanced wine. But if you've got something that is, is sort of kicking you in the face with either too much oak or too much sugar or too much tartness or, or any one of those, then maybe it's not a super imbalanced wine. Yeah, that's a good explanation. And you, and you touched on finish. I find myself using that a lot, especially, for example, when I talk about Proseccos, there's a uh-huh. ton of inexpensive Proseccos on the market in that $10 range. And they have but weird we, finishes. Exactly. When yeah, you, you're when totally you talk about like the Sucking difference on a rubber band in a 10 and a $20 Prosecco, just compare the finish on a $10 bottle of Prosecco versus a $20 bottle. Yeah. It, so it's it, not it, just it, the length. It's or... also the flavor. 
Right, exactly. So that's what is a great example for the differences in inexpensive and expensive for me and a big mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. And what about, here's another thing that you hear a lot, Kim, inexpensive wines will give you a hangover more than expensive wines. More you know, my that. jury is still out on this one. I like their explanation for it in this article where they're tying more expensive bottles to more carefully made bottles. So if you have a wine that costs a little bit more, there's more attention to detail. If you're using better quality fruit, then a winemaker might not need to add certain additives to it to kind of correct imbalances or mistakes in the wine. But I still think the science is so spotty with what can cause a reaction in a human being uh, when you're drinking wine. So at the end of the day, I my jury's out. I don't know if a less expensive slash cheaper bottle of wine is going to give you more of a hangover. I would say like I usually advise people, you know, pay attention to the alcohol level, pay attention to what you've been eating, how you've been, how much water you've been drinking, and then be aware that all of those things have an impact on how your body absorbs the alcohol. And sometimes it will really take us by surprise, you know, a wine that has just a couple of percentage points higher than what we're used to drinking can really kick you in the head sometimes. So just be aware and moderate in your drinking. But I don't necessarily have any good data that I can give people that cheaper wines uh, cause worse hangovers. And that could also go back to balance, where if it's out of balance, you might have more alcohol or come off as hot, mm-hmm. as they say. Mm-hmm. And that would hurt you the next day. Yeah. Or a wine alcohol. that has sugar high sugar and high alcohol. That is one thing that I've found that, you know, when you have higher sugar and higher alcohol together, that those things can sometimes lead to a little bit more of a uh, distressing morning the next day. So you said the article had like a $12 price point. We said over $12 yeah. would be considered. So in the past, you always had a $20 price point you used to recommend. Is oh, that no, I don't. 12 to 25 12 to 25 is my. I mean, 20. So, oh, you. you Oh, 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 I see what you mean. You used to always say $20 was like your. For like when you want to start getting into those better bottles. Yeah, I've always like that $19.99 price point. I feel like for a really, really long time was a great price point. But I like to use anything from like 12 and up as something that I no longer consider in the cheap category. You know, that can give you a good idea of maybe what a region is supposed to taste like or a varietal wine is supposed to taste like. And they were right on the same page. They said eight pounds. So eight pounds is like 11 bucks, 12 bucks. And would you say imported wines at that price point are a better value for going expensive than American wines? I honestly think it depends on what you're drinking. So if you're looking for California Cabernet, you're not, I think you're going to get a better $12 bottle of Argentinian Cabernet than a $12 bottle of California Cabernet. I think if you put those two head to head, you're not going to get the better quality product at that price from California. Then sometimes you need to go elsewhere. But a lot of it, I think prices for more popular wines, they can command a little bit more money because sometimes they're people's fallback wines. So the producers or the distributors know that people are going to be buying that. So I think that the value lies in sort of those less known places, those more esoteric grape varieties. So when it comes to the super popular stuff, I would say, yeah, you know, America, American wines and their prices are a little bit at a disadvantage, but it 
like everything kind of depends. Right. And for me, my my holy grail search every time is to try to find a quality wine or what I feel is a quality wine at the lowest price point I can mm-hmm. can find, you know. So that ten dollar great tasting wine from anywhere is like the holy grail for me in the wine yeah. world. And there was always the term going around. I don't people don't really use it much anymore, but they say QPR quality, quality price, price ratio. ratio which you don't really hear anymore. You used to say, oh, that was a great QPR, but- uh, I think you see it in writing. I don't think I ever, ever hear anybody talk about it. Yeah, well, that's the yeah. geeky, geeky me, right? So, so what's your, what, what are your favorite QPR wines these days? Or, or where are they from? It's been hard to find anything really California. Yeah. You, you could always find handful in the 10 to- $12 range, but now the price points are gone up. Recently, I was lucky enough to find one in like the $7 range. So from California that, that, yeah, that I thought was, wow, this is, you know, got a lot going on, but that is just been very rare. Yeah. I mean, California is sure hard. When you were in the restaurant business and you taste a ton of wines for your menu, I'm sure you were finding it harder and harder to find things at more lower price point, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, Really hard. So, you had to go to Portugal. You had to go to, you can't even really go to France anymore or Italy. Like it was South America. It was Portugal. How do yeah. Port, Portugal it's still, there's still a ton of good Portuguese stuff yeah. coming in under that $12 price point. Mm-hmm. And you, when you consider it's hand harvested and it's coming all the way across the, the world to yep. come here and it's still in that price point. So it's amazing. So, but there are unusual, every- unusual places, place names and grape names, and it's not Cabernet Sauvignon. It's not right. It's a Pinot tougher Noir. sell. It's a but tougher. You, if you tasted yeah. it, you, you would appreciate it. But mm-hmm. it, Absolutely. I think the listeners should know, I mean, Kim and I have tasted a lot of wine. And if you ever have a question or saying it's not true that there is definitely a difference, I mean, that's the key. I mean, the more you taste, the more you should recognize the differences and understand why some of these wines are more expensive. But you should also, on the other hand, look at why these other wines are so inexpensive. And we won't say the cheap thing, but they are very inexpensive for a reason. So, uh, we hope we gave some tips, Kim, for the listeners to, to go by. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find more information about Mark on his website, franklinlickers.com, and more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. And as always, you can find past episodes on SoundCloud. Welcome back to The Wonderful World of Wine. We wanted to bring another sort of geeky wine description uh, topic to your attention for something that you might see on the back of a wine label or hear us discuss on our show. And that is the concept of what does a creamy wine mean? What is this idea of wine being creamy, which seems very counterintuitive when you're talking about, you know, white wine or red wine that obviously can't possibly have any dairy or... (laughs) coconut cream cream or almond milk or anything in there. So what do we mean when we talk about creaminess in wine, Mark? This is always something I go back and forth. Do we want to describe this to our listeners, Kim, as creamy as a texture most in wine or as the flavor? Because Mm -hmm. really, you could go both ways. And But I think I find myself more when I ask someone about a wine or I say that it's creamy, I'm thinking they're going to taste the creaminess in the wine. So flavor. 
You're correct. More flavor yeah, okay. of the wine. We and, agree on this one because uh, wow. I am totally in agreement with you. And I get a, totally let me, let me check tied the up with this. It's a, it must be a holiday. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, that's good. So that's how we'll tackle it then. And Great. I think the best way to tackle the flavor of the creaminess would have to be about talking about Chardonnay for wine, correct? I think so. And that's right. usually where... I will have this conversation with people. And this article, which is from Wine Enthusiast, does a good job of breaking out the different ways that we might want to talk about this texture in a wine. And where I get tied up sometimes with talking to people about this is the the creaminess that you get from oak versus the creamy slash butteriness that you get from this particular second fermentation that wine can go through called malolactic fermentation. And sometimes you'll hear us talk about malolactic. Sometimes we'll call it ML. It's, it's you know, wine 102 or wine 201. It's, it's not your basic stuff that you learn about when you're learning about wine. It's a little bit more in detail. And it usually happens with red wines, but you often will taste that it has happened in a Chardonnay. And I get a little tied up because sometimes when we're taking our certification classes, we're not supposed to describe oaky flavors as having buttery, creamy flavors. And we're only supposed to reserve that for those flavors from malolactic fermentation. And I have a very hard time not doing that. Like I want to describe big oaky Chardonnays as creamy and buttery, even if those flavors don't necessarily come from the wood, but they come from the malolactic. I, I have a hard time pulling those things apart. So I always want to describe those wines as creamy and buttery. So let's tell the listeners a little bit, Kim, if I'm having a shot at a and there's oak, what would be the description or what would be the flavors you would detect from the oak by itself? Not talking the malolactic. I'm, I'm saying this wine is oaky. What would you get? So depending on the kind of oak, sometimes you might get a spicy quality like cinnamon or nutmeg or vanilla. If it's American oak, often you'll get coconut. And I generally will be able to pick out coconut. I'm like, oh, American oak. I can smell the coconut on there. And of this, um, like a burnt, if you leave your piece of toast in the toaster oven for just a little too long and you get that dark toasted, almost roasted marshmallow kind of flavor. So those are the ones that are specifically from oak. Do you have any other ones that I missed? Because I know that there are lots of different descriptors that people yeah, use. Yeah. And well, that toastiness comes from how they char the inside right. of the barrel. Right. So, I mean, I think that's but great. But it still comes from the barrel. Of, correct. It's still oak. And I think that's just a great overall description of when you say a wine is oaky. So now when you say it's creamy, you talked about this malolactic fermentation, which is a process. And, and it takes what we call malic acid, which is that like Granny Smith apple mm. acid, and it converts it to a lactic or a creamy style acid. And that's what you taste. You get that creaminess or it's smooth in your mouth when you taste the Chardonnay. So when someone is looking for a Chardonnay, I always say, do you want a fruity Chardonnay? Do you want an oaky Chardonnay? Or do you want a creamy Chardonnay? And people look at me like I have two heads because mm -hmm. they figure Chardonnay is Chardonnay, but it is <clears throat> one of the more difficult things to recommend for people yeah. based on that. And this is sometimes where I get hung up is being able to... And I think that this comes from the fact that I don't drink a lot of Chardonnay. You know, I, I taste it in classes and I taste it professionally, but it's not what I drink at home. 
So I have less experience being able to tease out the flavors of the oakiness versus the buttery creaminess from the malolactic. So apparently I need some practice when it comes to Chardonnay. Well, a lot of times I'll taste the wine. I'll say, hmm, I wonder where they're getting this from. And I'll go to the, find the text sheet and you'll see, yeah, oak. But a lot of times they don't really tell you that geeky, mellow thing going Mm -hmm. on. So you're curious where that creaminess is coming from. How can we relate a creamy Kim to sparkling? You're the, the queen of bubbly. How can we relate it to a sparkling wine? Do you ever use that term for sparkling? Sometimes, but I won't. I will usually use the word toasty in place of the word creamy because I feel like when it comes to sparkling wine, they are talking about the same thing. But I think where it's important is when you're talking about quality bubbles that have undergone a good amount of aging because that is a way that you can directly sort of equate the age of the wine and then therefore that toasty creamy flavor with a textural quality in the wine itself. And that is specifically the fineness of the bubbles. So if you have a sparkling wine and generally at this point, we're talking about champagne, French Accorta, which is from Italy, better cavas, some of the better things from Oregon and Washington. These are wines that have spent years on the lees, which are the yeast cells that after they have done their job fermenting the wine, they just settle to the bottom of the bottle and they sit there, but they keep changing the flavor of the wine. So when you age a sparkling wine for a good long time, you end up with all of these sort of side benefits from the aging. So you get this bready, and I think this is where the creaminess comes in. I I relate it more to baked goods than I do to creaminess. So some people might talk about it as a butteriness or as a creaminess, but for me, I talk about it more like French bread or brioche or croissants or something like that with that little bit of toastiness. And it changes that flavor, but then it also changes a little bit of the texture, I feel, but I'm more concerned with the actual bubbles in the wine. So it makes really nice, fine little bubbles that keep going 10 minutes, 20 minutes, a half an hour (laughs) after it's in your glass. And it just produces a really nice feeling in your mouth. And so all those things put together with a sparkling wine that has aged for a good long time. If you have all those components, then you've really got something special in your glass. So we agreed with the Chardonnay that the the creaminess is really the flavor. On the sparkling, my take was it's more the creaminess is more of a texture created by the lees that leads to a creaminess. Would you kind of agree with that statement? But but you're not drinking the lees. No, but it gives it, we talked about lees a lot on a a prior show where it gives it a creamier mouthfeel. So for me- But I think that that's with the bubbles. I think that it's it's because the lees are affecting the quality of the bubble. So the bubble's giving you creamy texture. I think the bubble, because they're really fine and little, yeah. they're not like big Coca-Cola bubbles that are just so floating on your tongue. Still more texture than than flavor. Yeah, still more texture. Okay. Still All more right. texture. So that's where I was going. I'm yeah. glad we, oh, we, yeah, got definitely. The, we got there. Yeah. We got to the point. <laughs> right. And that was kind of my more my point about the way that I describe it, where it's more like bread. It's like, that's the flavor. Like, I don't get the this creamy 
thing. If you were also drinking the Lees, so like people like good real wheat beers, you know, Hefeweizen's from, from Germany and from Europe, and it's got a little bit of that sediment there and you drink it and you can feel that creaminess where there are like certain sakes that still have the sediment in there and you drink them and you get that creaminess. Like th- that's what I feel like texturally I would want to describe as creaminess not not nice fine bubbles and certainly not not those flavors okay so, what's so i your... guess we we can disagree no i one. thought we pretty much agreed. are we on the it's same page a different different explanation <laughs> i guess but we pretty much agreed what about what's your your final thing for best pairing for a creamy wine food pairing oh so i ascribe to the like likes like food pairing rule when it comes to creamy and buttery. So like buttery Chardonnay with lobster dipped in butter or a creamy white wine with brie or a cream sauce or something else with butter. So I would kind of put them all together and they don't overwhelm. Like for me, I feel like they make a really nice, just one whole big package of delightful yumminess. What about you? I agree. Creamy with creamy. Anything creamy? could be could be cheese. It could be mm-hmm. the gravy of the dish. I think it works, you know, with certain yep. turkey with gravy, that type of thing where you mm. want to bring that out. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so many choices. And I, I absolutely love that style of Chardonnay. You don't like those oaky bombs or tasting, you know, sawdust in my wine. I, I want <laughs> no nice oak chips creamy for you. Because, huh? <laughs> you know, I think it's, it's more enjoyable by itself and it's, it's a better food pairing wine. Yeah. Thank you for listening today to the wonderful world of wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine and past episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes. Cheers. Bye, bye, bye.